This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Americans' understanding of racism shifted during the 1960s civil rights movement. Its leaders knew the opportunity to vote and economic equality were key to making real change. They were savvy about using the media to reach people around the nation. Stanford Law School professor Pamela Carlin says helping people to see the relationship between their lives and the lives of others is critical to creating a civil rights movement. She says the media is still crucial for increasing awareness of systemic racism in 2020. Black men in this country have been killed and brutalized by police for years. The difference with George Floyd was that it was caught on videotape. And that is a very powerful message. Getting people to understand that this is about people like them. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Show Up. The history of the American civil rights movement offers lessons for unraveling systemic racism. Today's activists need to work from outside and within the political system. Pamela Carlin is an expert on voting and political process. She's worked with the California Fair Political Practices Commission, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. James Steyer founded and leads Common Sense Media, a child advocacy and children's media organization. He teaches civil rights, civil liberties, and education at Stanford. They discuss the 1960s civil rights movement, LGBTQ and women's rights, and the path to equality for all people. Here's Steyer. My colleague Pam Carlin and I are delighted to have this discussion with you about lessons from the civil rights movement and advocacy today. It's such an important topic. I came up like Professor Carlin and my good friend Pam um, through the civil rights movement. Um, I'm a former school teacher, but I went to law school um, in order to be a civil rights lawyer, actually in order to be a civil rights lawyer at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which of course is part of the incredible history of the civil rights movement. And it was there that uh, I first met Pam Carlin. You know, that was my dream, that was the reason I went to law school. And in fact, it shaped my career. Um, I've spent the last 25 years or so doing child advocacy um, as opposed to civil rights law. But my classes at Stanford are all focused on civil rights and civil liberties. And I have a particular affinity for the, the civil rights movement itself and the impact it had on my life, on our society, on my kids' lives. It's why I'm so pleased to be here today with Pam Carlin. So Pam, why don't I turn it over to you and then let's get the discussion going. Like Jim, I went to law school to be a civil rights lawyer. Uh, when I was in high school, I read a book called Simple Justice by Richard Kluger, and it's the story of the civil rights movement that led to Brown against Board of Education, where the Supreme Court held that public schools in America could not be segregated on the basis of race. Uh, I started out doing voting rights and employment litigation. Uh, and in addition to doing voting rights litigation and employment discrimination litigation, uh, I also kind of branched out into doing uh, LGBT 
uh, rights issues and reproductive justice rights issues. Uh, and last year at the Supreme Court, I had the honor of representing uh, two gay men uh, who sought to use Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, one of the foundational statutes of the Second Reconstruction, to uh, protect themselves against discrimination for being gay uh, in the workplace. And we were fortunate enough uh, to win the case 6-3. And so when we start talking about the lessons from the civil rights movement, uh, I'll have a couple of things to say about that as well. So I'm super glad to be here. I'm looking forward to your questions uh, and to our discussion. What we thought we would do is talk for a little while about some lessons from the civil rights movement that we've learned and then throw it open to discussion because uh, that's how that's how we'll find out what's of most interest to you all. Jim? What has always moved me about the civil rights movement is not just the extraordinary success that this movement had. It was a movement that had enormous impact in society. And it changed our society on many, many different levels. And I would argue that none of us today are the same, nor have our lives been the same because of the impact of the civil rights movement. But if you, if you ask me how I would think about the original civil rights movement, what strikes me by far the most is the extraordinary stories of great personal heroism and leadership on the part of the people who made it happen. And you know, it's interesting, Pam said that she decided to become a civil rights lawyer when she read in high school, Simple Justice by Richard Kluger, a book which I have lectured out of for 20 years at Stanford University because it's an incredible set of stories. But just to mention a few for you, and then I'm gonna turn it over to Pam. I mean, if you think about it and, and the civil rights movement, there are so many different ways that it started, but one of the most emblematic starting points was the Montgomery bus boycott of 1954. And you think of, it's not just Rosa Parks, who was a carefully selected leader of that movement, refusing to sit in the blacks only section of the bus, but it was also the people who organized on the ground that bus boycott that was such an economic and personal hardship on the people there. And then of course, it's when Martin Luther King Jr., a young minister of 25, 26 years old, ended up becoming the leader of a movement surrounded by other clergy and people with far greater experience and leadership. But he emerged in Montgomery and to the, the extraordinary role he played in all of our lives. The other one that, that, that always touches me so much because it involves kids is, and I'm a child advocate, is that Little Rock Nine, the, the, the kids, it's the kids who integrated Little Rock Central High School. And the personal courage that those nine kids had to have, being the first black children ever to go to that high school and wading through you know, crowds of people wielding sticks and, and, and the most horrible epithets and denigration and doing it on their own, not just the first day, but day after day, and then ultimately being accepted and being the spear, the tip of the spear, if you will, of that integration effort at great personal expense and great per with great personal courage. And they weren't only in high school, but imagine what their families went to through as well, at watching them go in it. And then I moved to the 60s, you know, I've been the fortunate of having some of the people who were some of the original Freedom Riders come and speak in my class at Stanford. So the story of the Freedom Riders going through Georgia and Alabama, you know, the James Foremans, the, the Ralph Abernathy's, the John Siegenthalers, and of course, the extraordinary John Lewis and what they did 
getting on buses, going through the South, integrating the railways, the, the bus system, knowing they would be beaten, in some cases, not being sure they would return alive, the extraordinary courage they had. And the nonviolence with which they practiced it in the face of disgusting white supremacist movements that sadly have in some ways reared their ugly heads again in America, you know, uh, some 58 years later. But, but the Freedom Riders, and then finally, I, you have to say, because there's been, we've, there's such a loss when someone as great as John Lewis leaves us, but Selma and the bridge to freedom. And so the whole idea of those folks who crossed Edmund Pettus Bridge, and let's hope they rename it John Lewis Bridge, um, and marched into the crowds. Again, you know, knowing the personal threat to their lives and to their, and to their health and well-being, and yet believing in a bigger vision. To me, that's the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But what it translated, what that extraordinarily personal courage translated into is three things. And it was also, and it's completely coupled with three other things. Strategic leadership, really good leaders who really were smart and thought about what they were trying to achieve and then went about and did it and organized well. Second, the creative use of media. Now media in those days was completely different than it is today. And you had the three major television networks and sort of the advent of broadcast television, but they'd never have been as successful with the civil rights movement had they not been strategic about the use of media and communications and understanding how much it mattered. And John F. Kennedy had shown that in the 60 presidential election, but the civil rights leaders were very effective then. And I was mentioning to Pam earlier that one of the things I'm doing in the civil rights world now is running Common Sense Media is this whole campaign called Stop Paid for Profit, where we, along with the ADL and the NAACP and Color of Change and some other civil rights groups have, have both led an advertising boycott of Facebook and Instagram, and also a, a broader social movement to ask the platforms to stop undermining our democracy and being participants in voter suppression and the amplification of racist and hateful messages. Again, that's media technology 2020. What I say about the civil rights leaders of the 60s is they were very smart about the mediums of those days, TV, radio, and print. And then finally, success. And that's what it's all about, baby. They succeeded, they changed the world. And I would tell you we're at this cusp of an incredibly important moment here, the most important election of our lives and hopefully a new civil rights movement and advocacy that we've seen verbal up since the murder of George Floyd, but will hopefully deliver huge results in 2021 for everybody in this society, but most of all for kids and disadvantaged communities and communities of color. So that's my intro and I turn it over to my colleague, Pam. Yeah, so I thought what I would do is talk to you about kind of four lessons uh, that we learned from the civil rights movement in the 19, of the 1960s that I think are applicable again at this, at this moment. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that the promise that everyone in America could vote as a matter of the law and the books existed long before the civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement is when we finally got full enfranchisement in the United States. And we're at a period again now where we're seeing once again, the kind of vote suppression uh, that we saw in the 1960s. So the first thing to say about the 1960s civil rights movement was it was about voting, but it was about so much more than voting because a lot of people I think think of their civic duty as simply being to show up on election day and cast a ballot for one of the major party candidates and then go back to their lives. And I think the civil rights movement understood that 
uh, voting was the beginning in some sense of the process of gaining equality and justice. It was not the end of the process. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind today. And I'll just give you one example that I think uh, is especially powerful, which is uh, in 1870, when the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, that amendment enfranchised about 1.1 million uh, Black Americans. It only enfranchised men because women couldn't vote then. And it only enfranchised people over the age of 21. Today, we disenfranchise more Black men than were enfranchised by the Constitution through disenfranchisement based on convictions for crimes. And one of the things we're seeing now is that the courts did nothing to protect people against that kind of disenfranchisement, but people working in the streets, gaining, uh, getting uh, initiatives on the ballot and the like have changed that. So that first lesson about voting is you can go to the courts for some of it, but you have to go to the streets and you have to go to Congress and you have to go to the ballot box for other parts of getting people the right to vote, the right to cast a ballot and to have that ballot counted. And that's the first lesson from the civil rights movement. The second lesson that I wanna talk about is to elaborate on what Jim was saying about the role of the media. And here, you know, Black people in the South had been beaten for years trying to register to vote. Um, you know, sheriffs in the South had been enforcing white supremacy for years without there being much change. How did we end up with the change? Well, the civil rights movement was very strategic in looking for opportunities to bring to the nation's attention what was going on in the South. So they did marches when they knew there would be camera coverage of the marches. And they did those marches in places where they knew it would provoke a reaction of violence and suppression. And so two of the things that happened in the civil rights movement that I just wanna kind of highlight for you uh, here because I'll turn them to the, the contemporary issue, which is uh, when the civil rights movement tried to uh, tried to work in Albany, Georgia. It failed because the sheriff of Albany didn't overreact. It was the overreaction that caused people to recognize. The second thing that the civil rights movement taught us about media is something that's disquieting, but it's important for you to know if you're gonna be strategic. And that is uh, in 1964, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, uh, ran something called Freedom Summer in Mississippi. And the idea of Freedom Summer was to hold a shadow election to show how black people in Mississippi would vote if they could vote, because as of 1964, only 6.4% of black adults in Mississippi were registered. And they did citizenship classes and they did classes to try and teach people uh, how to pass the literacy test, which was tremendously unfair. Um, and what got people's attention was when three of the civil rights workers who were working in Freedom Summer uh, got kidnapped by the Klan and ultimately murdered. Two of those civil rights workers were white and from the North. And it was only once people in the North started understanding that this was about them as well, that they paid attention. Now, fast forward to today, 
Black men in this country have been killed and brutalized by police for years. The difference with George Floyd was that it was caught on videotape. And that is a very powerful message. Getting people to understand that this is about people like them and getting people to see and therefore to understand the relationship between their lives and the lives of others is critical. One of the really fascinating things that pollsters have uh, discovered in recent months is that the so-called racial resentment score among young people in the United States uh, has gone down. That is white young people today are less likely to hold prejudiced views about black people in the United States than they were a year or two ago. And that's partly because of the coverage of Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd and uh, of several other people uh, who lost their lives to police violence. So the role of the media and the role of getting people outside of the group that's seeking rights to understand those rights is critical. And here I'll just make another observation, not about the racial justice part of the civil rights movement, but about contemporary gay rights, which is the point at which the gay rights movement started to succeed dramatically in the United States was the point at which people who were LGB came out of the closet. Because that meant that people who were not themselves gay started to understand that people they respected, people they worked with, people they loved, their children, were gay. And so right before the argument in the United States against Windsor case, which was a challenge to the Federal Defense of Marriage Act that I worked on, uh, Senator Rob Portman from Ohio came out in favor of same-sex marriage after being against marriage equality for all of his political career. Why did he do this? Because his son came out to him and he wrote an op-ed that said, I want my son to be able to get married in the same way that I wanted my other children to get married. And so that ability to try and build bridges across a divide is critical to a civil rights movement because generally you're in a civil rights movement, the group that's seeking its rights is a minority numerically of the population. And a numerical minority is not gonna win at the polling place on its own. It has to build a coalition. And so one of the lessons from the civil rights movement is the various ways of building that coalition. The third point I wanna make is about uh, the March on Washington in 1963. Everybody talks about the March on Washington as this march for civil rights, but the actual formal title of the march was the March for Jobs and Freedom. Because one of the things that the civil rights movement understood was you would never have full equality in America unless and until you had economic equality as well. And the shocking thing is today we have made virtually no progress since the end of the civil rights movement at equalizing wealth and access to uh, education and access to jobs since the end of the civil rights movement. Um, and that's something that we need to get back to as well. This is not just a movement uh, about police brutality. It's not just a movement about gun violence. It's not just a movement about hate crimes. It's also a movement about economic equality and economic opportunity. And that's critical. That those two things go hand in hand with each other. You can't really get one 
without the other. And finally, the fourth part of the civil rights movement that I want to emphasize goes back to something Jim was saying about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which is that the civil rights movement was built not just on um, rational argument, it was built not just on arguments about particular rights, the right to vote, the right to a job, the right to housing or the like, but it was also built on a moral crusade and it was built on a religious foundation as well um, because people of faith, almost every faith has requirements of care for the poor, care for the vulnerable, uh, recognize the dignity of all people. And so it's no accident that the civil rights movement of the 1960s was led by people like John Lewis, who had gone to seminary thinking he would become a minister, or by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., or by Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, all of the ministers. The same thing is true today. I think after a long period in America where religion was thought to be solely the province of conservatives and reactionaries, we're starting to again see a, a religious movement as well as a civil society movement. Uh, and there's no better exemplar of this, I think, than Dr. Than Dr. William Barber, Reverend William Barber. So if you haven't seen any of his speeches, go to YouTube and watch them. Uh, go and look at the poor people's campaign that he's running. Think about the work that Moral Mondays has done in North Carolina in turning people out to demonstrate for the broad panoply of rights. That is, Dr. Barber recognizes he's not just talking about racial justice. He's not just talking about economic justice. He's also talking about reproductive rights. He's also talking about rights for LGBT folks. And all of these things can come together. The last thing I'll say, and then we'll turn it over to questions, um, is just to note for you, um, you know, the, the civil rights movement is the, the ultimate success of the civil rights movement in the law was the creation of some foundational statutes. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in employment. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in federally funded programs, which includes almost everything that state and local governments do, as well as universities. Um, Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is about public accommodations. Um, and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of the crown jewels of American civil rights. Um, more black people were registered under its provisions in the two years after it was enacted. It was the product of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and it produced more uh, enfranchisement, more registration in those two years than had happened in the previous 75. Uh, it has been the statute that has transformed city councils, county commissions and like all over the country. And then the Fair Housing Act. That was referred to often as the second reconstruction because the first reconstruction, which came at the end of the Civil War, ultimately failed. It failed when the South engaged in what came to be known as the redemption, where whites regained power uh, in the South uh, and the promises of the Civil War and the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments were never reached. I fear that we are on the cusp right now of either having the opportunity to have a third reconstruction or a second redemption. And the choice really is up to people in your generation 
to take up the work of bringing really to fruition the promises that the Constitution and the civil rights movements of the 1860s and the 1960s did before you. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings. But how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it. Those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments. It withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true, everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. I think we'll throw it open to questions and the like. Okay, so Stephen's question is, do you believe the, the success of the civil rights movement can be linked to a clear set of policy reforms uh, voting rights, marriage rights, rather than uh, specific goals. So that's a that's a great question. Um, it, you know, the thing about the earlier civil rights movement is its goals changed over time. Um, so the initial goal, I, I think, one thing to say about it is that the goals were they they always had some concrete demands in addition to everything else. So the concrete demand that the Montgomery bus boycott started off with was. Uh, do not ask black people who are already sitting down in the bus to get up and move to the back of the bus when they need more seats for white people. Uh, ultimately, by the end of that, uh, that movement, which lasted about a year, they were saying no more segregation on the buses at all. And so there was a, there was a change. Um, I think you're right that if you just have a movement that says we want more fairness, um, it can, it can dissipate. So a movement needs at any particular time to have some idea of some short-term goals that it wants to get and then some longer-term goals. So Pam, I would, just, I would just chip in and say, absolutely. I think you have to have a framework overall. I mean, we were talking about Rev Barber just now, you know, about among the really current leaders. I think you have to be relatively clear at sort of in a broad set of goals for people to be. I mean, it's interesting because you could argue that Black Lives Matter has been somewhat of a more broad-based, but vaguer in terms of policy, specific policy reforms. I'm not talking about local branches, I'm talking about in general. But I do think that having a, for a movement to have two or three sort of North Star goals is really effective in many ways. And so, uh, I actually, I think it's a very good question, but I think it's important. And I also think it goes to the issue that you raised multiple times, which is leadership, which is leadership has to articulate a vision. That's why Rev Barber is not just a great speaker on YouTube. He's just, he has a real vision. He's incredibly smart, but I think you have to lay it out there in a way that people can understand it because they can then see hope for success. That's my quick take on that. 
Yeah. So I got a question here that said that coalitions are essential because typically a minority seeking civil rights, except an exception would be uh, suffragists. Um, yes. And I think the answer there is no, because at the time that women were seeking suffrage, they, they, they couldn't vote. So you had to get a majority of the voters in this country to agree to women's suffrage before you could get suffrage. Um, you know, today, I think there are, there are obviously a variety of feminist movements in the United States that if all women agreed with their, with their views would be majority, would be majority movements. Um, but the interesting thing about the suffrage movement in the United States is it started in the Western states, uh, which allowed women to vote because they were trying to encourage women to move to those states and kind of be pioneers. You know, it wasn't so pleasant. Uh, to be uh, to be in those states in the 1880s or 1890s. And so they started out as states that recognized women's right to vote. Uh, and then the movement stalled quite a bit and it regained its velocity during World War I and it regained its velocity for a really interesting reason, which also ties in with how 18 year olds in the United States got their right to vote, which is uh, women started being very critical to the war effort once the United States entered World War I. Uh, and that was what kind of vaulted the suffrage movement back into prominence and ultimately uh, got the 19th Amendment, which, um, uh, which resulted in women getting the legal right to vote in the United States. Make one last observation about that before we turn back to the questions. And it's a, it's a really interesting one that ties in with my point before about coming out, which is after the 19th Amendment was passed in 2000, ratified in 2020, we really didn't have problems with people being denied the right to vote because of sex in the United States. Even though uh, the 15th Amendment, which is identical in every way, except it used the word race rather than sex, we had terrible problems. And that's because uh, women's votes didn't actually, with the exception maybe of prohibition, didn't actually change the outcome of elections very much. I mean, today we have a tremendous gender gap at the national level, you know, in polling data for this presidential election. But that's not been true in our history. I mean, people who thought that giving women the vote would somehow change uh, national policy, it didn't really change national policy all that much. And so Pam, let's, how about the next one? I wonder how to, to know when you should think about having a social change from inside the system or from the outside doing nonviolent protests in Tennessee. In other words, why civil rights activists didn't want to change the system from within. I'll take a quick crack at that, but you should. Yeah. Sure. So my take on that is this. So one, if you've worked in the political system and even the great Professor Carlin has worked within the Justice Department, which is a system that's sort of within the system. Um, I have almost always worked outside the system, but known the people inside of it. Um, I think that there are a couple of thoughts. One, in terms of big, bold change, it's always going to come from the outside. Not always, but 95% of the time it's going to come from the outside because people will think bigger. And they are unconstrained by internal politics and the dynamics of internal politics with a small p. Um, second, I think that bureaucracies and large institutions create inertia sometimes. One of the biggest things I would tell you running the biggest kids media and advocacy group in the country is you always want to... You always want to be entrepreneurial and be renew yourself and not be large and saltifying. I think that's very hard when you're inside the government, whether it's a, let's say the famine, our class last night was about the education. So we had two former secretaries of education. They run huge departments with hundreds of thousands of employees, et cetera. That's really hard to move a, 
a cruise ship like that, as opposed to from the outside when you can be small. Um, but you cannot do change solely from the outside. You ultimately have to impact people within the system, whether it's Congress people, the, the president or the executive branch, or your state legislature, or the people with, or, you know, in our business, the FCC and the FTC have a big impact on media and technology regulation. So, but I do think it's much easier to do stuff on the outside because you can think bigger, act more quickly, and probably have less politics involved. But that's my quick take on the question. Pam, anything from you? Yeah, I mean, I'll add, I'll add one sort of small point and then a larger point. Why the civil rights activists didn't want to change the system from within, they couldn't get into the system. That's why I started by talking about voting, which is, you know, if you can't vote, it's very hard to influence elected officials. I mean, ultimately, they managed so to sear the conscience of the nation that people who weren't directly affected demanded that their elected officials vote for the Voting Rights Act and the like. Um, so some of it is sometimes you can't change the system from within because the very, the very nature of the system is to have excluded you. Um, on top of that, you know, there are some things that, as Jim says, you've got to get inside the system to do because they can't be done from outside the system. So, for example, just, you know, think about healthcare in the United States. You, you can demonstrate all you want, but ultimately the Congress is going to have to pass a healthcare bill. HHS is going to have to enforce it um, and the like. Uh, and so, you know, one thing to kind of keep in mind is there are what are sometimes referred to as negative liberty interests and positive liberty interests. The negative in liberty interests is a point that Isaiah Berlin, a political philosopher, made a long time ago. But the negative inter liberty interests are the rights to be let alone. And those rights, it's, it's often quite easy to get from the outside. They don't require a lot of the government, just keep the government out of my bedroom, right, as one of those, or keep the government, uh, you know, keep the police out of my house. Uh, those are negative liberty interests. But the positive liberty interests, something like the right to go to a school where you'll learn what you need to learn in order uh, to function effectively in a 21st century society, a 21st century economy, you've got to get the government to provide that. Because if the government doesn't provide that, there's no way for people who can't afford it for themselves to get it. So there's a balance of what you can do inside the system and what you can do outside the system. And some of what a civil rights movement does is create so much pressure outside the system that the system has to respond. Uh, either it has to respond because, you know, no peace, no justice, no peace, or it has to respond because people become uh, so convinced by the movement that it's important to change. And, and that's the lesson of the 60s. And because it was in, it started outside, but it under, under, undeniably had to end up inside. I mean, Pam, this is a great question. Arena time where the larger public will react to moral movements in, in quotations, you know, Black Lives Matter seems to be one for sure. What do you think? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a, a lot of the movements that are most powerful today, Black Lives Matter is one, and obviously the environmental justice movement is another, I think are moral movements. They're talking about, uh, you know, stewardship of the planet, or they're talking about equal dignity and respect for uh, African-Americans in the United States. Um, I think it's really hard to have a civil rights movement that doesn't have at its core some moral commitment. Um, it, whether that commitment is everybody should be free to, you know, free to love in the way that the LGBT movement was about, or whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter, 
or it's the environmental movement. It's really hard to have an effective civil rights movement that doesn't grab people in some way about their moral core. I mentioned some of the stories of extraordinary personal heroism and putting your body and life on the line. That has to come from a moral core that, that is driven by a deep conviction. And then that can be such an inspiration to people. And I think, by the way, this can be misused though too, right? And uh, it, it's interesting to try to explain some of what's going on in current American politics on some sides of the aisle in terms of morality in a way. And, and, and whether it's, it is seen as moral or whether it's seen as amoral, it's really an interesting question now. But well, I, you know, there was a great essay recently by Peter Weiner, who's a Bush appointee, yeah, yeah. Uh, evangelical Protestant, who has written that he's quite worried that his movement has lost its moral compass, that in return for getting judges uh, and some deregulation out of the Trump administration, it stopped being about uh, morality. And it's really interesting if you look at, you know, the, the change in religiosity in America over the last 30 years, I think some of that change, the, some of the decline in religious commitment in contemporary America comes from the fact that people no longer think that religion is about taking care of poor people, treating people with dignity uh, and the like. It's become, you know, solely about uh, can I refuse to sell a cake to a gay couple that wants to get married? And how do I ban as many abortions as possible? I'm sorry, there has been a disgraceful, I'm, I'll go much farther than that, Pam, you're being more polite than I would be. I think you've had a series of quote unquote religious leaders who basically done such damage to the idea that of a moral or religious leadership because it's pure uh, transactional at the lowest level firms of politics as opposed to any moral leadership. Really interesting question. Here's another one that's good though too, I think. It's easy to go from quote, we're different to I'm better than you are. I think this in the context of social change. How can we inspire everyone to see themselves in others, empathy, and see the best in others, positive regard? I think great question in the, in the context of today's uber partisanship. Pam, what do you think? I think an emphasis on justice as well as kindness. Because um, kindness or empathy by itself um, doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do afterwards. I mean, you can be sympathetic and not feel any compunction to do anything about, about the injustice in the world you've seen. And I think, you know, this is one of the hardest, one of the hardest things, I mean, is to, is to keep a sense of optimism and keep a sense of hope in a world right now where, you know, you're just seeing incredible forms of selfishness. I mean, for me, the idea that people won't wear a mask in order to avoid infecting other people is just mind boggling. These are unusual times. I mean, this is a unique moment in American history and in my lifetime, for sure. And I am older than most of you guys in the audience. And it is mind boggling to see some of what has happened, but, and the choices that are being made. And I think history is gonna be look, looking back at this here in a very unique way. I mean, Pam, this is an interesting short, we can answer this question very quickly. Cause I don't know what, uh, what you think, but you should answer it first. What's your view on the importance of the ERA? So at this point, I don't think the ERA makes much of a difference. It would have made a big difference in 1970 when it was proposed, because as late as the early 1970s, um, courts treated 
claims of sex discrimination the same way they treated claims of discrimination against people for you know wearing green or uh, the like. They they used what was called a rational basis test, and as long as the government had some reason, however far fetched, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex was okay. So there was a you know, there's a case from Michigan that w- in the, the, the Supreme Court decided where they said women could only work in bars if the bar was owned by their husband or their father. And the Supreme Court said, mm, not a problem because you know what? This is just a way of making sure that, you know, waitresses and bartenders who are female uh, don't, get, uh, don't get hit on in the bars. Or uh, women were excluded from juries in Louisiana. And the Supreme Court said, you know, not a problem because women are home taking care of the kids, right? So the worst forms of stereotypes about women, uh, and they were, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg recognized in her early litigation, a gilded cage. So at that point, having an amendment to the constitution that said you can't discriminate on the basis of sex would have made a huge difference. But by the mid 1970s, the Supreme Court had come around on this to hold that discrimination on the basis of sex was something the government should be very skeptical of. And so virtually no sex-based discrimination in the law uh, has survived since then. Uh, For a while, there were a couple of cases that involved issues connected to pregnancy and childbearing that were treated differently, but even those have largely changed. And statutes today make it make it illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex in employment, in educational opportunities and the like. So, you know, if the ERA were ratified today, and there's this very real question whether it can be ratified today because the original proponents of the amendment gave a certain amount of time within which to get ratification and that time's long past. But assuming that it could be ratified today, it would be deeply symbolic, but I'm not sure that there's any law that is uh, that's okay now, or any practice that's okay now that would become un- that would become forbidden, or vice versa. Very interesting. I'm not going to add anything because I agree with everything Pam said. Okay, next question. I think this is a very interesting one. It's easy to see why people who are part of an oppressed group should w- or will engage, but what gives hope or makes progress seem seems to really be due to people who are not in that group. Real meaningful change doesn't seem possible unless those not in the group, can empathize with the oppressed groups. Can you speak to that and the role of outsiders in movements? Okay, I'm definitely saying something about that one, Pam. Yeah, why don't you start them? Okay, because I think about it in the context of my own kids. So I've got four kids. They are not a member of a press group. Actually, my son happens to be black. Well, your youngest son is. My youngest son happens to be black. And he was completely impacted for the first time, really, by what he saw in the George Floyd murder and the aftermath and Breonna Taylor and all that. And he doesn't talk about it all the time with his parents because he's 16, but it was a big issue. But for my older three, for our older three kids, they are not part of an oppressed group. But the thing that's been most impressive to me in the as a dad, but I also see this in, the, in my role as a Stanford prof and with working with students is I think the big key, and this is gonna be hugely important in terms of whether or not there's gonna be fundamental major change over the next year or two, is that post the murder of George Floyd, young people came out, quite young people, privileged young people came out. Pam was referring to Mississippi Freedom Summer before and said that two white Jewish guys from the North were murdered among the four people murdered by the Klan in Mississippi during Mississippi Freedom Summer. 
Cheney and Schwerner, or Schwerner and Goodman, excuse me, Schwerner and Goodman were the two. And that made the rest of white people wake up. And it's the same thing Pam was so right about her Rob Portman story. <laughs> Rob Portman completely does a 180 on gay marriage when his son comes out to him. So yes, there's something that happened this time with George Floyd and the aftermath that's different in my opinion. I do think just the graphic nature of- I, I, You were right, Pam. I totally agreed what you said about the fact that, the fact is with the body cams now and the Philando Castile, do you remember that one? That I've been there. Again, as the father of a son who happens to be black, I watch all those things and go crazy because I think of my own son and that in being in the backseat of the car, pulling out his driver's license. That's what that guy Philando Castile was doing. Where George Floyd, who's basically just pleading, you know, hi, hi, I'm, you know, what does he change to $20 bill? So I think that they're for the first time in, in memory. And I really see this in the Stanford students that I teach. They're thinking bigger and in terms of societal change as opposed to this issue on campus or that thing. And I do think that the, the, the key, if you looked at the people who are out marching with Black Lives Matter, it isn't just members of oppressed groups and, and it's young people. And that's why Pam keeps coming back to young people, by the way, because so many of the important social movements, whether it's civil rights movement, women's movement, gay rights movement, et cetera, young people are a huge role. And so, I'm optimistic, but yes, that's a great question. Pam. I mean, I, I, I'm optimistic in one sense, but a little cautious in another sense, which is people need to understand that whatever happens in the presidential election, that is not the end of the rainbow. That um, is true. You know, people need to keep the pressure on about economic justice issues. Uh, right. People need to keep the pressure on about police reform. I mean, one of the things when I was at the Justice Department during the Obama administration is um, we had a whole section of the Civil Rights Division that spent huge amounts of its time working with police departments to try and change their culture and change the way they behave. And we need to rebuild all of that capacity. And that requires people to keep the pressure on. Um, you know, if they just say, well, we've gotten rid of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a symptom of our problems. Donald Trump is not the cause of our problems. No, and I think you actually, in the context of the civil rights movement, look, you got to put it out there on the table right now, folks. You have the rise of a white supremacist, tiny minority in our society, given unprecedented megaphones over the past few years, which I never thought was going to happen. I mean, I started out by saying stories from the 1960s when the Bull Connors, that was the police chief in Mobile, Alabama, or whatever, Montgomery or Mobile. Um, but, you know, when you had symbols of white racism, George Wallace standing, you know, or the governor of, uh, um, of Arkansas trying to block the kid, the Little Rock Nine kids from coming in. You had open white supremacists, open. And, you know, in the 60s, a lot of that got buried, uh, at least in terms of public. And what's interesting is, that movement, if you, I don't want to call it that, but th those folks and the groups that they represent have surfaced largely because of social media and largely basically because of Facebook and Instagram, not only, but largely because of those two companies, which is why we have pounded them at Common Sense and the ADL and other civil rights, because they are disgraceful in their, in the platform that they have given a tiny minority of white supremacists. But that said, what does that say about American society? The, the, the Proud Boys and all the Boogaloo Boys and all the other, what I find beyond despicable white supremacist groups, they're there. 
And yes, the president of the United States has actually given them a platform and an audience. But what is that about our country? And what does that say as we go into a civil rights movement of the 2020s? Well, it it says essentially that we have never fully reconstructed the country after the Civil War, right? We, you know, if you look at, if if, you know, if the Civil War, if the promises of the Civil War have been carried out at the end of the war, uh, if every Black person in the United States then had been given the proverbial 40 acres and a mule, the wealth disparities that exist in America today would not exist. Um, If we had a government that was more committed to economic equality, I mean, in addition to everything else, we're now sort of in a second gilded age on top of everything else. The levels of economic inequality in the United States resemble those at the turn of the 20th century. Um, And, you know, that breeds racial that breeds the kind of racial resentment that you're now seeing because it, it, you know, cynical politicians managed to displace the anger that should be directed at, you know, what, what Theodore Roosevelt once referred to as malefactors of great wealth. They've managed to displace that onto immigrants uh, and onto uh, black Americans. And we need to do something about that, which leads to the most recent question, which is about the case for reparations. Um, you know, in some sense, it's impossible to do reparations for what has been done in the United States because most of the people who deserve the reparations are dead, right? I mean, even, even if you think about what can we do today. And so the best thing I think we can do is not to try and figure out, you know, which Black people in the United States today are descended from pe- people who were enslaved in 1865, um, or, you know, or, or the like, but to change fundamentally the communities in which Black Americans live so that those communities have the same level of educational opportunities, the same level of employment opportunities, the same ability to uh, vote and elect candidates of their choice that other Americans enjoy. Um, you know, rather than writing individual checks to people, um, which I'm not sure... I'm not sure, you know, if you had to write those checks, they would be massive checks. And I'm not sure you could get public commitment to that as opposed to getting public commitment to decent healthcare and decent education and, and uh, decent, uh, decent opportunities. But Pam, I don't think, I don't think that the reparations, it's so interesting, you know, when my brother Tom was running for president, he actually called for reparations. He's a hedge fund guy. That was shocking. Yeah, but what, what, what did he mean? Let me tell what he means. That's what I was going to say. Because I think what you just did with the definition of reparations was sort of the classic, by the way, I totally agree with what you're saying, I'll point. But the classic definition is you're going to actually, you know, figure out how much money is owed to an individual person, an individual family or whatever. No. But do I feel that they, and this is, let's think of our friend Brian Stevenson or Rev Barber, who you were talking about yeah. before. You know, really, really incredibly important moral leaders, I would say to the audience, moral leaders really leading the next version of the civil rights movement. Brian Stevenson, Rev right, Barber. But what, but, but, right, but let me say what they're saying. Massive Marshall Plan investment in low-income black communities. Right, right. That's yes. very but that's, but hold on. But it's still okay to call that reparations. It is, but I think it's, it's not individual. It's not individual. And that's, yeah massive investment and it's a and that's why you use the term reconstruction i mean or redemption but the thing is this 
I, when, when Tom came out and said, you're for reparations, A, other than falling off of my chair, when my brother did that because of who his background, but I got it. He was saying massive, massive investment in low-income communities and particularly African-American communities that have denied so many different ways for so long. So yeah, I like, that way reparations makes a lot of sense. Just depends on the, the semantic definition of the term. Yeah, I mean, if I could recommend three things for folks in the audience to read that I think they would find fascinating. The first is... Um, uh, well, four things. The first is David Halberstam's book, The Children, which is about the students who led the civil rights movement. And then on top of that, John Lewis's book, either the version Walking in the Wind, which is his completely written version, or The March Trio, which is his graphic novel uh, uh, version. Um, and then I would say uh, Ira Katz Nelson's When Affirmative Action Was White, so that you understand that where we find ourselves today is not just a product of slave of the 200 years or so of slavery uh, leading up to the Civil War. And it's not even about the failure of reconstruction. It's about what the United States did in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that made it impossible during a period of massive economic growth in America for Black Americans to catch up. And it's really important to do that. And then the last thing I'd say, obviously, is uh, Coates's The Case for Black Reparations, which is in his, in his book. And, and it's a terrific uh, discussion of, of the reparations issue. And I'm gonna add two more. This is in our professorial. By the way, Pam does this every week in class and the students love it. But here, I'm gonna add two more. Remember we talked, Pam said the book she read in high school, Richard Kluger, Simple, Simple Justice. Read that book. You'll never be the same in terms of thinking about racial justice in America and the hero heroism of the original civil rights movement. And the second thing I would do is go find the TV series Eyes on the Prize. If you really want to be moved and understand where we could go and how grassroots social movements led by extraordinary people during really interesting times, go watch Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize. I, have sh I showed it for years in my Stanford class to young, to incoming students so that they would get a sense of the courage and the heroism, but the vision of the people who led that movement. And oh, what let me, let me kick in one more book that I think people will find really fascinating. It's David Cole's Engines of Liberty. And it's about how citizen movements actually change the constitution. The first piece of it is about, um, is about uh, the marriage equality movement. And the second piece is about gun rights. So it will show you both a liberal and a conservative movement and how those movements changed what the courts think, changed what legislatures think, and changed uh, how we all live. If you're in the younger range, 18 to 34, how you view this and then continue your commitment to social change, whether it's inside the system, outside the system, or both, is imperative. So I would just say, learn the lessons of the civil rights movement. Um, follow up with me and Pam, find me at Common Sense Media, find Pam and me at Stanford, um, but, but chart your own course in changing America because this country needs it. We, needs a new, we need a new civil rights movement and we need you to participate and vote. So thanks so much for being with us and good night. Good night. Thanks, Pam. Great to see you. Great to see you. Pamela Carlin is a professor of public interest law and co-director of the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Stanford Law School. As one of the nation's leading experts on voting and the political process, she's worked for civil rights and to establish fair political practices. 
Stanford professor James Dyer is the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media, which advocates for children and children's media. He's taught numerous courses on civil rights, civil liberties, and children and education issues. Their conversation was recorded in October. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by Aspen Ideas Show Up. Our team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Kristen Cromer, Libby Franklin, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenen, Azalea Milan, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.